Well, I want to welcome everybody to Gospel of Grace. It's a pleasure to be teaching here in our Sunday school. I'm going to make sure all my gadgetry is on. It is. As you can see, we're going to be looking at Revelation 3, 7 through 13. We're going to be looking at Christ's address to the church in Philadelphia. But let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all our blessings in life. We know that they all come from your hand. We thank you for life and uh, for salvation, most of all, through your Son, what he's done for us on the cross. And we do thank you also that we can gather in freedom to study your word and to learn more about you, that we may grow and that we may be more conformed to the image of your Son. And so we ask that you would accomplish that for us today. Help us to think well upon this biblical text. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we look here at the church at Philadelphia, I want to begin by mentioning the fact that the church of Philadelphia is only one of two churches that has only positive things said about it. And what's interesting about that, I think, is that the church in Philadelphia was a small church. And what's unique about that is, I think, think about it. You have a church known as Philadelphia who is commended by Christ. And the reason they're commended by Christ isn't because they're big. In fact, he says that they have no power. So the reason they were commended was because they were faithful. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. There's an implication for you and I. God doesn't care about the numbers of a church or the numbers of your ministry. What he cares about is faithfulness. And so we see that in spades here with the church in Philadelphia. But I want to begin by doing a little bit of history with the church and how the city itself got the title Philadelphia. It comes from the term phileo. The verb means to love, particularly familial or brotherly love. And then, of course, you have Adelphos, which is brother. So this is the city of brotherly love. Now, where did the title come from? Well, let me back up in history. Who in here is familiar with Alexander the Great? I think most of us have heard of him, obviously. Well, remember, he dies in 323 B.C. He dies in battle. Well, when he dies, his kingdom is broken into four different parts. And one of the kingdoms was broken underneath his servant, Lysimachus. Try to have that name when you go off to kindergarten or to school, right? Talk about have a kick me sign on your back, right? Well, Lysimachus ends up dying, and the kingdom ends up being under what's called the Adelids. It was a very prominent family. And so the Adelid dynasty becomes very prominent in the region of Asia Minor around Philadelphia. And it reaches its zenith of power around 165 B.C. So that's the time frame we're looking at. And the king that makes the Adelid dynasty the largest is a king named Eumenes II. And he is a tremendous tactician. He is a tremendous logician. He's just a really a great ruler. But the Romans desperately want to take over this region. And so the Romans start up going and appealing to various relatives of Eumenes II, saying, will you help us usurp your relative Eumenes so that we can take over this land? And one of the relatives that they primarily tried to go after was Attalus II. That was Eumenes' brother. And so think about it. The Romans are saying to Eumenes' brother, Attalus II, if you help us usurp your brother and depose him, we'll set you up on the throne and you'll be our vassal king over this entire region. Well, Attalus does not do that. Why? Because he loves his brother. And therefore, you have this city of brotherly love. And so that's where it comes from. The city of brotherly love, Attalus II remained faithful to his brother Eumenes. Now, the reason I think that's significant to our discussion is, remember, the marks of a true church is also, in some sense, the same brotherly love. Jesus says in John 13, 34, this is a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. We read in the book of 1 John that one of the evidences that we really belong to Christ is if we love the brothers and sisters. And so we have that in the church in Philadelphia, and ironically, the city name points to that great reality, just kind of unwittingly, right? Now, here, let me point out some more things I think that are important to know The city had survived a horrible earthquake in 17 AD. Now, the reason this is important for our sake is this city ends up receiving help from the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor it receives help from was Tiberius. He was actually a good guy if you ran into trouble. But what ends up happening then is Philadelphia renames itself Neo-Caesarea, the new Caesarea. 
Why? Because they're grateful for the emperor. Now, remember, that was around 17 AD. Fast forward to when John is writing the book of Revelation. That's around 95 AD. You have a new emperor, the emperor's Domitian, and he's not so nice, is he? In fact, he demands every subject in all of his kingdom, that is the entire kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire, that you would have a certificate from a local authority that would attest to the fact that you had sacrificed to the emperor. Now, we, we talked about this some weeks ago. Some of the local communities would still give you a certificate saying that you had sacrificed to the emperor and called him God, if at least you would adhere to their local deities. So in other words, the locals would say, well, you're doing well with our own deities. We'll let you off with the emperor. And they would give you a certificate. Well, the point is the Jews often did this in their synagogues. Their synagogues ended up becoming very apostate and syncretistic. And so they were the ones who were given these certificates, and therefore they could keep their synagogue open. But now think about Christians. They go to their local synagogue. They're trying to perhaps preach the gospel, and they want a certificate, and the Jews say, no, you won't adhere to the syncretistic religions we do. You're out. And so that leads me to the other point here. The synagogue of Satan had shut the door on true believers. Okay? But Jesus is going to show that he is the one who ends up opening the kingdom and shutting the kingdom. And that's what this passage, I think, is really all about. Who is the administrator of the kingdom? It's not any local church group. It's not any prelate. It's not any pope or bishop. It's Jesus Christ himself. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, and that's what we're going to be looking at here today. So Jesus is the administrator of the kingdom. So listen to what he says here in Revelation 3, 7. He's speaking through the apostle John. He says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. And I'll show you in the next slide what he says. But I want you to look at the description of Christ. Notice he is the one who is called holy. The term in Greek there, hagias, means he's set apart. Okay, so if you and I talk about sanctification... The idea of initial sanctification comes from the same term, hagias, to be set apart. So Jesus is set apart, not only uniquely for God's purposes, but he is God. And so he is untainted by evil. He is different than anything else in his creation. All right? Now, when I say that Jesus is different than anything in his creation, he's God, he's completely distinct, that does not mean as the neo-orthodox movement claim that there's no contact point between God and man. You see, the neo-orthodox movement years ago under like Karl Barth, they would say, look, God is so holy other that there's no contact point between God and man. Well, no, God condescends himself to speak to us by using scripture, the analogical usage of language. So we have to realize that just because God is holy other, he can still, still speak to us. He condescends to speak to us. But Jesus is God. He is wholly other in the sense that he is not tainted by sin and he is different from his creation. He's also the true one. So when Jesus deals with humanity or he deals with anything, he speaks things that correspond to reality. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't lead astray. He is the true one. And he is the one who has the very key of David. Now, why is the key of David important? Does anybody have any guesses as to why that would be important. Yeah, Rich. <laughs> you know, you're not far off. You're not far off. Thank you for playing. Uh, Rich said, just till I get it on the, the recorder here, Rich said uh, so that David can get into his house. <laughs> Very well said and not far off. The, uh, the passage or the quotation there actually comes from a passage in Isaiah twenty two twenty two. Let me read this passage and I'll explain what it means. Isaiah 22, Isaiah wrote this, and this is the Lord. He says, Then I, that's the Lord, will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Now that passage originally was applied to a man named Eliakim. Eliakim had supplanted Shebna. Shebna was an administrator over all of the Davidic kingdom in Judah, 
but he was unfaithful and haughty. So God replaces him with this Eliakim, and now he has the keys to the Davidic kingdom, meaning he's the one who allows people into the palace, into David's house, or he does not. He determines what's binding, what is acceptable in the kingdom, it's what, and what's not. So he's really the second in command in the entire kingdom. In fact, this Eliakim ends up brokering the deal. Remember when you have Sennacherib and all of the Assyrians in 701 B.C., they surround Jerusalem? Who does the negotiations? Eliakim. He determines what Judah is to do. Why? Because the keys of David have been given to him. So the image, of course, then, is that Jesus is the one ultimately who has the keys to the Davidic kingdom. When he lets someone in the kingdom, they're in. And if he shuts the door on someone, they're out. And so, therefore, the Christians in the Church of Philadelphia should not fear what the local synagogue says. You and I should not fear what any prelate or bishop or pope says or any religious leader says. We should fear what Christ alone says through his word. Now, oh yeah, Peter. Oops, before you, well, let's get it on tape. <laughs> then the I in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two is referring to Jesus? Or? When he says, then I will set, that's the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Okay. okay. Yep. And so he's speaking of Eliakim, who at that time was a servant okay. in David's house. And so he had the keys, but this is now being applied to Jesus himself. So it's a great question. Remember, Jesus is not only the root of David, he's the source where David comes from, but he's also a descendant of David. He comes from David, so he's both. He's the originator and the descendant of David. So Jesus alone. Now, one passage I want you to write down. It's a passage that you should read. It'll just fortify this idea. Is Ezekiel 37:25. In fact, maybe Ezekiel 37:24 and 25. And read that maybe tonight sometime. I'm not saying do it now. But you'll see how many times David is talked about. And one day, it says that Israel will be under the kingdom of David, and David, their prince, will rule over them forever. Who is that ultimately referring to? The Messiah. That's Jesus. Why? Because the promise in 2 Samuel 7 was that the Messiah would come from David. So David and the Messiah are often talked about interchangeably. So again, the big picture here is Jesus is the one who determines who's in the kingdom, not the local synagogue. And next we see Jesus will avenge the abuse of his people. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name, behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now let me point to the screen again. Notice Jesus commends them. He says, look, you have little power, meaning more than likely they were small in number. So do numbers necessarily matter to God? In fact, they don't matter at all. What matters is faithfulness, and that's what they were known for. They had kept his word. Now, what's interesting is we're going to be, in verse 10, talking a lot about this verb kept, tereo, means to keep or to guard. The idea, perhaps, with the word of God would be the idea of cherish. You won't let it go. You won't turn to doctrinal error or heresy. You won't turn to sin. You love those things. You love the things of God. Remember the last church we looked at, Sardis? Sardis was what? It was the dead church. And why was it dead? Because they didn't keep his word. And so do you remember what was the command to repent? He says, keep my word. So keeping doctrinal soundness, keeping to the scriptures is essential to what? To pleasing Christ to pleasing God, and that's exactly what they did, all right? In fact, they didn't deny his name. So keeping the word is synonymous with not denying the name of Christ, remaining doctrinally faithful. Now, notice he says in the red, he says, who say these are Jews in the synagogue that were mistreating the Christians? Notice he says they claim that they're Jews, but they really are not. Now, Brian, you had the Romans 2, 28 through 29, Passage Now, just before you read that, everyone turn your Bibles to Romans 2, 28 through 29. I want to talk about this idea of being a true Jew and not being a true Jew. Now, let me just set the, a story for you. One time I was at a prophecy conference, and I remember there was a gal that came up to me, and I've never seen her before, 
And just out of the blue, she comes up to me at this table that I was working at, and she says, you know, my great-great-great-grandmother had Jewish blood in her. And I thought, well, <laughs> I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, gee, lady, that'll give you a, maybe a nickel or a cup of coffee or something, right? In other words, why do we care if we're believers in Jesus Christ what our ethnicity is? Right. Okay, who makes one a true Jew and fit for the kingdom? Belief in Jesus. So listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, 28 through 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So notice Paul there says that the physical circumcision of a man, which was under the Mosaic Covenant, now means nothing. What matters is the circumcision of the heart. And circumcision of the heart, which is alluded all the way back in the later chapters of Deuteronomy, it's talked about in Jeremiah, it's talked about in Ezekiel. True circumcision of the heart means people have a heart that can believe in whom? Messiah. And so a true Jew now is one who is going to end up believing in the Messiah. All right, now, saying that, remember, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Walking affirms that only people who believe in Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile, are going to be partakers of the kingdom. But at the same time, we have to be able to say the kingdom is coming to Israel. The promise for ethnic national Israel is not over. Now, how do we affirm that? Well, you can turn to this. Just turn to it. I'll allude to it. Nine chapters later in Romans 11. Romans eleven twenty six. remember Paul says, all Israel, in fact, he says, so in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, this is something Bob had pointed out to me years ago. I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago now, Bob. We're getting old, you know. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, here, here's the debate. What does it mean, all Israel? Some theologians will say all Israel is every believer, Jew and Gentile. So it's not a reference to ethnic Israel, Well, that can't be true. It has to be a reference to ethnic Israel because notice in verse 28 in your Bible, notice it says that they're enemies of the gospel for your sake. Well, would every believer in the gospel, Jew and Gentile, be an enemy of the gospel? Well, that doesn't make any sense. So who were enemies of the gospel? Ethnic Israel. So when it says all Israel will be saved, that's ethnic Israel. And remember, I had mentioned this passage last week from the pulpit, from the sermon, Romans eleven twelve, Paul says this, Now if they're, talking about Israel, if their transgressions were riches for the world and their failure are riches for the Gentiles, how much more their restoration? And so his whole point is, look, if the cutting off of the Jews temporarily brought us the salvation from God, how much greater will it be when all of Israel ethnically comes to faith in the Messiah? So again, two things we have to hold tight and dear. No believer, no, I should say no person, except for being a believer in Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, will enter the kingdom. You have to be a believer in Jesus. But at the same time, the kingdom is coming to Israel, and at the end of time, there really will be a national repentance of ethnic Israel, and they will come to faith in the Messiah. Peter, you've got something. What were covenant brothers believe? Well, the covenant brothers would see, tend to think of Romans eleven twenty six with all Israel, they would tend to see that as a reference to every believer, Jew and Gentile, yep, which I think is it's, it's just not possible in context, as I alluded to earlier. Yep. Yeah, good question. So now here, one thing I want to show you here is notice the promise. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Well, that is an allusion to Isaiah 60, verse 14. Now, let me set the stage here in Isaiah 60. The context was here God is promising that the Israelites who had been abused by Gentiles, when Jesus reigns in his kingdom, the the Messiah, the millennial kingdom, one day there would be a reversal where the Gentiles who would abuse the Jews would now come and bow to the Jews in Zion. That's what's being promised here. Well, notice Jesus is applying that to Gentile Christians. Okay, so notice what it says, Isaiah 60, 14. God says the sons, and these would be the Gentiles of those who have afflicted you, will come bowing to you. And all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. So notice that phrase is almost identical 
to what Jesus has just said in Revelation 3.9. And what will they call? They says, they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion. That's, of course, Jerusalem of the Holy One of Israel. And so do you see the irony? In Isaiah 60, verse 14, Gentiles would come and bow down to the Jews in Jerusalem and honor them. No longer would they pillage them and beat them in battle. But Jesus is applying this now to Gentiles, saying, you Gentile Christians in Philadelphia who believe in me, these Jewish people in the synagogue, they're going to bow to you. And so what further proof do we need that nationality doesn't matter? What matters is faith in Jesus Christ. That's our entrance into the kingdom. Jesus will avenge the abuse of his people. He's assuring the people of Philadelphia of that very thing. Now, for the sake of time, I got a lot to cover here in this next verse. Uh, Verse 10 here, Christ's great promise to the church. Now, before I even read this, this is one of those linchpin verses where a lot of systematic theologians will differ. And so perhaps I would even dare to say more ink has been spilled about this verse in the book of Revelation than any other. It's very, very important that we get this verse right if we're going to understand our systematic theology, particularly our understanding of if the people of God, that is the church, go through, goes through the, the wrath of God. Okay, so let's read the passage and we'll make some comments here. Let's begin. This is another promise that he gives to Philadelphia, but remember, it extends to all of us. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, first of all, notice why it is that Jesus is going to bless them. He says, it's because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Again, the dead church in Sardis, they didn't keep doctrinally sound. They went after other doctrines, didn't they? They didn't keep the word. So what did the church in Philadelphia do well? They kept the word. They were doctrinally sound. Doctrine matters. They kept the scriptures of Christ. Now, what's interesting is this phrase. He says, you've kept the word of my perseverance. What does the word of my perseverance mean? There's really two options. Either this is about Jesus' perseverance, which is recorded in the scriptures. And so we read about his persevering on our behalf to the point that he dies and subjects himself to godless men on the cross. But it also could be what's called a genitive of result. And what that would simply mean is the construction has to do with the word of Christ's perseverance, meaning you and I read the scriptures, and the scriptures function as a means of grace so that when we remain in them, learn from them, are reminded of them, you and I end up persevering as well. And I'll have to say, I think that both are true. Because the scriptures teach about Jesus' perseverance, they certainly do, and you and I are called to remain in the scriptures so that you and I will continue to persevere as well. That's what Bob has been teaching us in the means of grace. What is the primary means of grace? The word of God. Remember in 2 Timothy 3.17, it equips the man or woman of God for how many good works? Pas in Greek, every good work. So there's nothing, including perseverance, that you'll be lacking if you remain in the word of God. Okay, so I don't think it's either or. I think it's both hands. So now notice the promise then. He says, because you've done this, and notice the play on words. You've kept terao. I think it's aorist active indicative there. You've kept the word of my perseverance. I will what? Keep you. You see, they were in his word. They were real believers. And because they're real believers, why are they real believers? Well, because they kept his word. Unbelievers don't keep the word, do they? No, they were real believers. They kept the word. So what's he going to do with real believers? He's going to keep them from the hour of trial. What a beautiful promise. Now, here's what we have to wrestle with. First of all, what can we say from this passage about the hour of trial? Well, I would say that we can claim three things about it. In other words, we want to define what is this hour of trial? Was it a local tribulation? Was it just something that was going to happen for 60 minutes? Or is this something more serious than that? Well, I think it's more serious. I think it's a reference to the day of the Lord. In other words, the 70th week of Daniel. First of all, when we look at the hour of testing, notice it's imminent. The one thing we can say about this hour of testing is it's about to come upon the whole world. Now, the participle there, about to, comes from the verb mellow. And it just means what it says, about to. It's the idea of it being at hand. Remember, an imminent event is one that is always at hand. It is always threatening until it actually breaks forth. 
an imminent event does not have to happen with any certain time frame. It doesn't have to happen within 50, 100 years. It is always at hand. There is no precursor to tip you off to an imminent event. If something has to happen before this, then it's not imminent, and you can't say it's about to happen. Okay? That's the definition of imminence. And so this about to, I think, points to the fact that this is an imminent event. It's at hand. That's the idea. So first of all, it's imminent. Notice it's also universal. It's going to come upon the whole world. And the term that's used there is the term that we use to refer to the whole inhabited world. So this is in some local tribulation, like was promised to Smyrna. Remember, Smyrna was also a faithful church. Well, they were promised that they were going to go in this life through tribulation for 10 days. Well, this is not a local tribulation like that. This affects the whole world, the whole inhabited world. Now, notice also we have a purpose clause. You have an infinitive verb, which gives you the purpose. What's the purpose of this hour of trial? Well, it's to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, what's very interesting about that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is it is used exclusively, and I say again, it is used exclusively of unbelievers. That phrase, as it's used through the book of Revelation, is only used of unbelievers, those who dwell on the earth. In fact, it's used four times other than what you see here. Used once here, twice in this passage, once here. Every time those who dwell on the earth is a reference exclusively to unbelievers. Now, somebody had, I think it was Nancy. You can just give the microphone to her. It was um, Revelation 11.10. Everyone turn your Bibles before you read, Nancy. Everyone turn your Bibles to Revelation 11.10. Revelation 11.10. And what you're going to see here are two references using that phrase, those who dwell on the earth. And you'll see conclusively that those who dwell on the earth are the unregenerate. Now, remember the context of Revelation 11. Remember, you have two witnesses. And these two witnesses are proclaiming the gospel, and the Antichrist kills them. Those who dwell on the earth rejoice over the death of those who proclaim the gospel, and the proclaiming of the gospel tormented those who dwell on the earth. So that's obviously shows you that those who dwell on the earth are not believers. So go ahead, Nancy. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. Okay, stop right there. I'm sorry. Who are they rejoicing over? The death of God's two witnesses that are proclaiming the gospel. They're rejoicing over the death of God's people. So the unregenerate do that. So I'm sorry, keep going. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So the prophets, these two witnesses, tormented those who dwell on the earth. Why? Because the unregenerate can't stand the gospel unless they're regenerated by God. So that's evidence, I think, that those who dwell on the earth are unbelievers. Now let me show you another one. I won't have time to get into Revelation 8.13, but it shows us the same thing. But here's Revelation 13.14. Notice this is what the beast does, the Antichrist. That's the he here. It's he, he deceives whom? Everyone? No, it's those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. So what we can conclude, therefore, is that the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is a technical term referring to only unbelievers. So what is the purpose of this hour of trial? Is it to test every single person, you and me included, that is true believers who have kept the word of God? No. The purpose is exclusively to test those who dwell upon the earth, unbelievers. All right? Cindy's got something back there. Hold on. We got to get you on. uh, Oh, sorry. (laughs) It just helps us feel the flow. So don't worry. Okay, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Okay. So, how does the term dwell translate? I mean, it's obviously earth dwellers is different from just living on the earth. Okay, you understand um, what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, There's I think, more significance to no, it. No, so it's does just it those translate? who live on the earth. They're, you're right, they're earth dwellers. They're, they're those who are consistent with the earth. Now, remember the earth, there may be a play here a little bit, is sometimes the earth is known as the sphere of Satan. It's Satan's domain, this world. And so the phrase, those who live on the earth, it may be a little bit of a jab intended because they're not the heavenly people like the church are. But I don't think we should read more into it than it is. It's just simply those who dwell on the earth. It's used over and over and over as those who are living on the earth 
And therefore, those who are living on the earth are unbelievers. And maybe pointing out, look, you and I, who are believers, we're not on the earth, <laughs> right? We're, we're not there. Yeah, but it's just dwell just means to live. That's the only thing it's pointing out. Yep. Yeah, Brian. Well, I was just going to say that, yeah, we're, we're told that uh, believers, we're not of this world. Yeah, there so. you go. Exactly. Now, the wor- term world typically is cosmos, and here the term for earth is gase. So I'm not trying to make a connection there. I'm just simply saying that phrase we know conclusively as unbelievers, and they're the ones who just live on the earth. I don't think we should go beyond that. Okay, that's all I'm trying to point out. But what we can know is that the purpose of the hour of testing is to test not believers, but strictly unbelievers. We can know that from this text. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 4 and start in verse 12. I want to show you something very interesting. Think about this. As you're turning to 1 Peter 4, 12, while you and I are living in this world, you and I as believers are undergoing tribulations and trials. But, and by the way, let me point out, see that term testing? That comes from perasmas. And perasmas has to do with testing to determine if something's genuine. When the term of testing is used and it's applied to believers, God's purpose is to test in order to demonstrate that our faith was valid. In other words, it's not designed to trip us up and to make us go into perdition. But when testing is done of the unregenerate, it is to demonstrate that they really are unbelievers and therefore deserve the punishment that they get. Now, what I want you to understand is that in this life now, remember last week we talked about we're living in the interlude between the 69th week and the 70th week of Daniel. When does the 70th week of Daniel break forth? We don't know. But in this interlude period, this world is characterized by believers being tested, not to trip us up, but to demonstrate that our faith is genuine. That's what Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He says, now notice he says, beloved, this is for believers. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your what? Your prerasmas, your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So this is normative. That's the way it is in this life now. Verse 13, he says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, when does that happen? The 70th week of Daniel, you may result with exaltation. Now, slide down to verse 17. I want you to see when this reversal happens. Peter says in verse 17, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So do you see right now, you and I are being tested. It's not to determine our salvation. That's already been dealt with. It's to demonstrate that our faith is genuine so that when Christ is revealed in glory, you and I are glorified as well. All right, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. You and I are demonstrated to be valid. We really do believe we have kept his word. All right, but in the 70th week of Daniel, this whole thing changes. And now the texting comes upon those who what? Who dwell upon the earth. And it's not to design to give them another opportunity, really, although they're given more opportunity, but it's, demonst- it's used to demonstrate that they deserve the judgment that they get. Why? Because they haven't kept the word. They don't believe the gospel. When God had spoken, they lined up with the devil who said, has God really said? Has God really said that? Jesus is the only way? How many times have we heard Oprah Winfrey scoff at that? John 14, 6, Jesus himself who created all things, as Bob is going to be teaching us, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Oprah Winfrey gets on her, her TV show and says, that can't be true. Oprah knows more than Jesus, the Messiah. That's consistent with being a dweller of the earth. Okay? So that's the purpose of this time period. This time period, the hour of testing, is not to test us. There's a reversal. It's going to test those who dwell on the earth. Okay, that's the point. So let me focus a little bit more, though. There's some issues with Revelation 3.10 that I want to talk about. Let's read it a little bit more carefully, just the first part of it here. Again, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. Now, what we want to do is we want to hone in on the verb tereo, keep, and then the preposition from. And the reason we want to hone in on that, I think we have time, is because there's been a lot of debate as to how that should be translated. In fact, notice the title of my slide, kept through, taken out of, or kept from. 
These are all different ways that scholars have interpreted tereo ek. So again, we're just focusing on how does tereo ek, the verb and the preposition, function. A verb is typically some action that a subject does. A preposition shows the relationship of that verb, right? What direction did the action take place, or how did the action take place, or where did the action take place? That's what a preposition answers, all right? Now, here are different options. Does this mean to be kept through, taken out of, or kept from? Now, let me explain why this is important. Think of this hour of testing as referring to the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. So this would be the beginning of the seven years. This would be the end. So you and I are over here, and we're living in this linear time frame of time. We're living and we're getting closer and closer to this time period. When does it come forth? We don't know. We could be right here. We could be over here. We don't know. We simply don't know. But one day it will break forth. Now, this is obviously teaching us that we'll be kept from this time period, but what does that mean? Some scholars think that the tereo act means to be kept through. So the idea is we're traveling through here, and all of a sudden we're going to be kept through, and we're going to be kept obedient and faithful to Christ through the 70th week of Daniel. Now, here's the major flaw to that position, and it's devastating. I think you could just write this off and say it's not possible. The preposition that John could have used to, to teach that concept, that you'll be kept through this time period, is the preposition dia. The preposition dia, or even sometimes ace, uh, E-I-S, would have the idea of through this time period, but that's not what he chose to use. He chose to use what? Ek, the idea of from. So right away we can say, well, that's not even a valid option. That's not what John is teaching here. Okay, so right away we can get rid of that option. Now, post-tribulationist, what is a post-tribulationist? Uh, somebody who's a post-tribulationist believes that we go through this entire period. We go through the seven-year period, and at the very end we're taken out. But they would believe that we're taken out of the inside. Does that make sense? So think of this. They believe that tereo ek means we're taken out from within. So we were within this time period... And then we're taken out from within the time period, the, the time of trial. Does that make sense? In fact, one of the leading scholars in evangelicalism in the 20th century, Robert Gundry, that's the position that he put forward. And it changed a lot of Christians' minds. And I think unwittingly, I like Robert Gundry in a lot of things, but he's wrong here. Okay, and he, he really taught people that, look, you're going to be going through this time period and you'll be taken out of the midst of. Now, here's the best rendering, I think, of the verb and the preposition. This is what I think it means, and I'll be proving this to you. I think kept from means, again, you and I are going, we're living somewhere along here. We're going towards that time, and we're not going to be allowed to enter into it. Preservation on the outside. We never enter into the sphere of the hour of testing. We never enter into Daniel's 70th week. That is how tereo ek functions. Okay, so now, that's the debate. And, and we want to focus on this. Because sometimes, if we don't get these little details right, we get the verse wrong. We get the verse wrong, we get our theology wrong. We get our theology wrong, we believe wrong things. So let's nail this down and give evidence. Who is right? Is Robert Gundry right that we're going to be in this hour of testing and we're going to be taken out from the midst of it? Is that what tereo ek means? Or... Are the pre-tribs right that we're kept out from it on the outside position? Does everybody see the difference? Are we taken from the midst of it, or are we kept altogether from it, never entering into it? Now, oh Ed, you got a question. we got to get the microphone. Hold on one second. What about the thought that the hour of testing could be at a different chronological time for different people? Yeah, like a partial rapture, that sort of idea? Yeah, like, you know, my hour of testing might be now, yours might be next year. Yeah, the only problem with that is I think this is, again, it comes upon the whole world. Okay, so it's universal. It's not just for a local group, you see? So right away we have to say, well, what's a, what's a universal judgment that we know it's coming? Well, Isaiah 13, remember the day of the Lord is going to come upon the whole world and God would exterminate sinners from it? So... This is a universal judgment. The day of the Lord is a universal judgment. No, it can't be local. It can't be just for a few people. It's, it's universal in scope. So that's how I would answer that objection. Yep. 
And by the way, at the end, we'll, we'll handle some objections. But now here's what I want you to do, is what I'm going to do is give you evidence that when we look at terao ek, that verb and preposition put together means preservation on the outside. Now here's the difficulty. We only have one other verse in all of Greek literature that uses terao ek, and I'll show you that on the next slide. But we have some verbs that are very similar, like dia terao. Dia terao is terao, just with a preposition added to the front of it. So turn your Bibles to Proverbs 21.23. I want to show you how dia terao and the preposition ek function in Proverbs 21.23. And I'll show you, it functions just as a pre-trib would understand this verse in Revelation 3.10. Proverbs 21.23, Solomon writes this. He says, whoever keeps, there's dia terao the first time, his mouth and his tongue keeps, there's diatrao, and by the way, I'm referring obviously to the Greek Septuagint, keeps, I'm sorry, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Okay? Now, let's think about this for just a moment. Let's, instead of the hour of testing, let's put in, in our mind, trouble. So this sphere, this circle, represents trouble. Is Solomon saying that if we guard our tongue and keep our mouth, that we will be in trouble, but then we'll be taken out of it? Or is he promising that we'll never enter into trouble? Well, I think it's obviously the latter. Those who keep their tongue in their mouth, they never enter into trouble in the beginning, right? So his idea is not that, look, if you keep your mouth in your tongue, if you're in trouble, you'll get out of it. It's that it keeps you from trouble. You won't enter into the trouble. It's preservation on the outside. Dia trao ek, Okay. Nancy, you look like you had something to say. What do I what do I say? What was yours? Keeps. Guards. Yeah, same idea. Yeah, in fact, Tirao can mean that. Diatrao, the idea of guarding. Which by the way, well, it's just real quickly. Tirao, remember I'm saying that the function of the verb and the preposition together is important. Is Tirao really a verb of motion? It's really not. It's a static idea. And that would lend itself better to the preservation on the outside. Tereo, this idea of guarding or keeping, isn't a verb of motion like erkamai, which means to come, or arrow, to take. It's not a verb of motion. It's a static idea. And that lends itself very nicely to the idea of being preserved on the outside. So that's one example I gave you. Now, that wasn't tereo ek, but it's very close. Let me give you another example of dia tereo ek. Turn your Bibles to Acts 15.29. This is the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15.29. Listen to what the Apostle says here, but you're going to see, again, an example of preservation on the outside. Acts 15.29. Here was the conclusion, or part of the conclusion that the Jerusalem Council had come to. That was that the church was to abstain from what? From things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. And he says, farewell. So let's take the circle now, and let's think of it as referring to idolatry, which is kind of shorthand for all of those things that are being prohibited, that you're to keep yourself from those things. Now, when he says that if you keep yourselves from such things, you do well, does he mean that we should be in those things and then take ourselves out of them? We should be engaged in fornication and then take ourselves out. We should be engaged in idolatry and take ourselves out. No, he's saying don't enter into those things. Isn't it obvious? It's preservation on the outside. So there's another example of di terao ek. Now, again, di terao is not terao. Now, I'm going to come to the granddaddy of them all. I just showed you that those two examples show you preservation on the outside. But this is the most important example because it is the only passage in all of Greek literature that has ever been dug up that has terao ek in it. And lo and behold, we are so blessed because it is another passage from John the Apostle. In other words, we're comparing apples to apples because John wrote Revelation 3.10 under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he also wrote John 17.15. John 17.15 is that great priestly prayer that Jesus prays in our behalf, every believer. Listen to what he asked the Lord. He asked God, he says, I do not ask, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Okay? 
Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to understand Gundry's view. Now, Gundry, who's Gundry? He's a post-tribulationalist. And he wants us to believe that teraoak means that we are to be taken from the midst of the trial out. All right? Now, here's what he would say. He would say, look, the promise here is that the world, which is governed by Satan, and we all agree with that. This is, Satan is the God little g of this world. He says what's being promised here or asked for by Jesus is not that believers are going to be taken out of here, but that we're going to be preserved in this time period and therefore, or with, I shouldn't say time period, but in this sphere, the world. But here's the, my objection to that. Notice he's not looking at the end of the verse. The contrast isn't about the world, but the being kept from the evil one in particular. Is everybody with me? So here's the biblical view as I understand it. You have two spheres. You have the sphere of the evil one and the sphere of those in Christ. Those are the two spheres. Now, those of the evil one and those who are in Christ, yes, we all live in the world, but there really are two spheres. Think about the passage that Bob just taught us in Colossians 1.13. The Apostle Paul says, For he, that's God, rescued us from the domain of darkness... And what did he do? He transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved son. All right, now let me give you an example of this. Let's say you're at a football stadium and somehow you're just omnisciently for a moment able to know who's a believer and who is not. And let's say there's 50,000 people at the football stadium and you somehow are given this omniscient gift for just a moment and you know that 49,000 people are unbelievers and 1,000 are believers, you could conclude in one stadium you have 49,000 people who are in this sphere and 1,000 that are in this sphere. That's what you can conclude. Now, both spheres exist in this world, but notice what does Jesus want God to do? He says, keep the believers from what? From the evil one. So if those people are of the evil one, the 49,000, Jesus' prayer is that those who belong to his will never, ever be encroached by the evil one again. Okay, now, here's something we have to think about. In John 17, 15, some people say, well, that's just a prayer that Jesus offered to God so that we would be kept from temptation, kept from sinning. No, 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 it's far greater than that. This is a prayer for eternal perseverance for the people of God. This is a prayer for eternal security. Now, let me prove that. The very next chapter in John 18, 25 through 27, one chapter after Jesus gives this prayer that believers will be kept from the evil one, Peter denies Christ three times. So if this prayer is simply to be kept from sinning, then Jesus' prayer failed. Within one chapter, we would see that. But no, it's not about keeping us just from sin in general. It's about preservation altogether. It's about our eternal security. In fact, let me give you further proof of this concept. Notice what John says in 1 John 5, 18. He says, we know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God, I think that's a reference to Jesus, keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Now notice the term keeps him. And what happens? The evil one does not touch him. So you don't have the evil one touching those who are in Christ. There really is a separation. Yes, Mike. I would just also like to mention that this is Jesus praying, and the scriptures tell us that if you abide in me, and my word abides, abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Uh-huh. Well, Jesus abides <laughs> in himself. <laughs> Great and point, yes. So when he prays, it's done. It's, it's done. a promise. Yep. Amen. So, well said, yes. Amen. Cindy, right behind you. Thank you, Mike, yes. Yeah, God will answer this prayer. Um, also, when the vision was given to Daniel, he was told that the 70, the 70 weeks were decreed for the Jews and for the holy city. That's right. That's so right. this 70th week of what we call the tribulation, the focus is nation Israel, not the not the Christian world. I mean, we're not the focus of it. The nation of Israel is the focus of the 70th week of Daniel. You're right. It's Israel-centric. You're right. And even the, the Olivet Discourse is, uh, when he says, when you see the, 
abomination that causes desolation. Those who are in Judea are flee to the mountains. Do you notice, what are we to do in Minnesota? One of my jokes was, what are we to go to Buck Hill? All right? <laughs> what does a Minnesotan do, right? But you're right, the whole thing, the point, I'm saying that it sounds like an absurdity, but the whole point is it's Israel-centered, okay? But remember, those are our promises too. And we're going to talk about this next week when we're talking about the name. Jesus promises them a new name. They're not going to have the name Neo-Caesarea anymore because remember the pagans took that instead of Philadelphia. But he's going to promise them a new name. And that was Daniel's prayer. He was concerned about the people that had been given the name of God. And what we have to realize is that by faith in Christ, that's our kingdom too. So you're right. It's Israel-centric, but those are our promises. So, yeah. Yep. Now, uh, one other item here that I just want to mention here is notice here just logically are we going to be kept from the world? No, that's not the request. It's to be kept from the evil one. And again, I just mentioned these biblical evidences that there really is a separation from the evil one and Christ. That's preservation on the outside. So here, here's the whole point of this whole thing. This is the only other example in all of Greek literature of tereo and ek being used, and it's preservation on the outside. Okay, it's not being taken from the inside out. It's preservation on the outside. Never shall the evil one come into contact with those who are in Christ. That's what it's teaching. So let's apply that then to Revelation 3.10. Let's look at the implication of that. Again, what's the promise? Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. So think about we're trucking along here. Here's the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years. Here's a three and a half year point. You and I are living somewhere over here. We're going towards it. And what's promised is that we'll never enter into it. We'll never enter into it. Now, how are we taken out of that? It doesn't say. But we know from other passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and John 14 that it's via the rapture. Okay, we'll be taken out. All right? So the 70th week of Daniel is the time period that we're going to be avoiding. Now, let me handle some objections, and then you guys go ahead and, oh, we got one here. Or a question or comment. Eric, not just today, but over the years, you've systematically, scientifically laid out pre-trib rapture in a big way. I sure. mean, peri-deo and all sorts of different things in scientific Peri-deo. terminology. <laughs> yeah. um, now, there's top-notch scholars. Just, I mean, for people that attend this church, we would think that this is absolutely rock-solid, no-debate, pre-trib rapture. But you know and I know that there's top-notch scholars that would preach otherwise and would go exactly the other way. In your, is there any wiggle room whatsoever? Is there any debate open to we going through the, the um, Daniel 70th week? Or is it absolutely rock tight, solid, no way we're going to for sure get raptured before the 70th? Yeah, week? thank you. Thank you for the, thank you for the question. Hey, let me uh, just tell you a little bit about my life. I was never paid by any pre-trib organization. In fact, I held my own pre-trib position very lightly, very loosely. Until I became part of a um, kind of a debate where I wanted to know more about it, and I was afforded an opportunity to really delve into it about eight years ago. And to be, when I initially began the debate, I thought there was wiggle room. But ironically, I'm becoming to see that there's less wiggle room. Now, what I'm doing, um, just to let you know, I'm showing you what the best scholars are saying, like Robert Gundry. He is saying that it's taken from the outside or from the inside out. What I'm just showing you is evidence from the scriptures themselves that tereo ak or diatereo never functions that way. So don't believe me, believe what the scriptures are saying. That would be my response to that. Um, yeah. So does that help? Yeah, that's why. Well, right, I would say that the, I'll, I'll address this in a minute, but I think we should be gracious to all people who hold to different views, but I think that that shouldn't steal the joy from us to knowing what the truth is. So on the one hand, I'm saying if someone's post-trib, God, God bless you. I love you. You're my brother if you believe in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I'm not going to go post-modern on you and say, well, who can really know? No, we can know, I think. That the evidence is clear, and it doesn't steal the joy from me to know that somebody else has a different view because I'm firm in my convictions that this is what the Scripture teaches. So on the one hand, we can be gracious to others who hold to a different view, but at the same time, I can have the convictions to say these things are what the scriptures teach based on the evidence, not based on conjecture, but based on the evidence. Yeah. Yeah, Mike. I know you, you like to get through all your slides and write no, up don't against worry. time. But, we have five uh, minutes. So uh, we've got a couple different three positions. We've got pre, mid, post. Yep, and right? I'll be hitting those a little bit here. Yep. Right. 
So kind of thinking about Rich's question here, yeah. what is the effect like on our salvation? What's the main concern that we should have? I know we want to understand the scriptures, but there yeah. are people that have fallen in, in different positions. So for the mid-trib or the post-trib, what's the danger of understanding it that way? The danger? I don't, I don't think that there's real danger in, in and of itself. I, what I do think, though, is we should want to believe the promises of God. And if the 70th week of Daniel is this horrible time of wrath, see, it's easy to say, well, what's the difference now? But when a quarter of the earth is being killed, it's a big difference. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? That is a big difference. Yeah. Um, so what I'm saying is it's one of these things that I look at what's going to happen in the 70th week and to say, look, I don't want to wish something and therefore it's true. I wish that we were going to be exempt from that time period. Ergo, I want it. It must be true. But it does give me great pause when I see the seriousness of what happens within that time frame. And when I realize that this is the wrath of God, and God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, I want to know that that's a promise. And I want to be able to articulate and, and interpret that well for the people of God. And because there have been so many dissenting views, I think what I used to do is despair. Well, who can ever know? And therefore, eschatology is just show, thrown on some shelf where we say, you know, no one can ever really know it anyway. And, and so then we just give up on it. And it becomes a, a doctrine that we think it's just a postmodern. Well, somebody has this view, somebody has this view, who can know? I'm saying, no, I think the evidence is, is actually fairly clear. Um, that's how I would answer that. Yep. So that's why it matters, I think. Yep. Yeah. I was talking to you uh, earlier, Eric. Uh, I'm looking now at... Uh, light and darkness yeah. throughout the uh, where it's mentioned uh, primarily in the Old Testament. And the uh, God tells us that when we're not saved, we're in darkness. When we are saved, we are in the light. Well, you can go all the way back in the Old Testament. I, I used Amos this morning when I was talking to, uh, with Eric. But they talk about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. And it says why... Would you look forward to this? For the day of the Lord will be darkness. So then my question would be, why would the Lord take us from darkness, then we get saved, we're in the light, and then put us back into darkness during the tribulation? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, well well said. Well said, Brian. Um, We don't have enough time to get through the rest of the slide, but let me just throw this out there. Um, At the end of the day, we want to be understanding what the wrath of God is. Because we're not destined to wrath. So let me give you a few passages in our remaining. We just got a couple of minutes. Um, you know what? I'd rather do it justice. And, yeah, I better not. We don't want to delay too long here. But um, we'll, we'll hit it next week again. But let me just add some verses to think about. Remember in Isaiah, um, Isaiah 26. Well, well, let me read it. Isaiah 26, 19 through 20. I just want to point this out. Is this a brand new doctrine that we're spared from the wrath of God? Isaiah 26, 19 through 20, there's a promise of resurrection. He says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. There's resurrection. Now, where do these people are resurrected? And by the way, the, the context is the day of the Lord. Where do these resurrected people go? Verse 20, he says, come, my people, into your rooms and close your door behind you for a little while until wrath runs its course. So here you have the people of God taken out before the wrath of God. So really what we're arguing about on this time frame is when does the wrath of God begin? Okay, and it really boils down to pre-wrath and mid-trib people say the wrath of God is only in the last three and a half years. And I'm saying, well, how can that be true? Because at the fourth seal, you lose a quarter of the earth's population due to sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts. Those four things, everyone agrees, happens in the first part of the 70th week. And in Ezekiel 14, 19, that was what? It was the wrath of God. So why is it no longer the wrath of God now? Why? The day of the Lord comes like a thief. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. Are you honestly going to be saying peace and safety when you've seen a quarter of the earth die? Would you say peace and safety then when you've seen a third of the earth die and all these things? No, you're not going to be saying peace and safety anywhere, but you would be saying it prior to the breaking out of the 70th week. So the day of the Lord breaks forth when? The beginning of the 70th week. That's the only thing that makes sense. Okay, and that's why it's an imminent proposition. If, if you were waiting till these things, you have plenty of precursors that will tip you off. But no, we don't know. 
Okay, so we'll handle more of these objections. That's what I wanted to handle next. And we'll, we'll start off with that next week. And then next week, I want you to read and pay attention to verse 12 of Revelation 3, because we're going to focus on why it's so critical that we're going to be given a new name. A new name. Because, and I'm going to show you how important it is to be named by the name of Christ. We're going to talk about the preciousness of the name and even the third commandment, not to take the name of our Lord in vain. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So that'll be very important. But we'll start off handling some of these objections and then we'll move on. So, all right, God bless you. Let me just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the truths found in Scripture. We thank you for the evidence that it's not murky, that you've made it clear. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you've told us the beginning from the end so that we may trust in your great promises, that we would persevere in this age now during our trials, that we would look forward to you coming for us through the clouds and take us, taking us home. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that as your word says in Colossians 3, we would focus on things above, not things that are on the earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.